We've got programmable commerce, right? Commerce where, like we said, we've got all these token gating, all these conditions. What does that end up with? It ends up you get this programmable economy, right? It's not a digital economy. It's yeah. an economy that can be programmed with all these complex rules and what Jason Potts calls a Turing complete economy, um, which is just like incredible. So answer to your question, yeah, for me, it's physics all the way down. It like, it scares me a little bit though when you when you talk about that because I kind of, I like at, as much as I want programmable money, don't we want dumb money? Like where's the finality in the transaction if money can be programmable? I think most Programmed of I think the programmable, actually, I think the programmability sits more with Boson, right? In that, yeah, if I send you one ETH, I send you one ETH, there's no conditions attached. All right, everyone. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show. Happy holidays to everyone. Twice a week, you and I, together with the guests, my friends, and, and everyone in between, we get to dive deep with some of these leaders, these folks who are building some of the coolest things in Web3 and crypto. And we focus on like the stories, the people that they met, the things that they've done, and we have a good time together to truly understand where this movement came to be, where we are right now, and where we're going. And today we're going to talk to Justin Bannon from the Boson Protocol. Justin, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, you, we were just talking. You moved into a new house, and it looks really cold. You just you just got all the hot water going. I thought you were wearing the multiple layers and multiple jackets as a symbol for the crypto winter that we're in. <laughs> Not quite, but yeah, I've got, I've, I've, I've just moved house with a got a little five year old, so uh, managed to get the base level infrastructure in place, i.e., hot water and heating today, just in time for Christmas. So uh, yeah, infrastructure all the way down. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is my this is my favorite time of year, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's it's going to be a fun family time, and I'm I'm ready for a little kind of week off from crypto. Often when I switch my brain off, that's when I have kind of some big ideas. Like, like version one of the protocol, we completely refactored the architecture. So I had to switch the brain off and then thought, wait a minute, we can do it better on pretty much Christmas Day. So we'll see. <laughs> when did? That's probably what's going to happen, by the way. <laughs> Shower thoughts. Like how many? Everyone knows this is true. This is why we need time off, but most of us don't do it. So the almost as like holiday season. It's almost like a forced time off. It was like the whole world kind of said, no matter what religion you are, if you don't even have a religion, this will be some sort of like forced time off where honestly, some of the best ideas, you know, that we've all ever had have come from just like zoning out during family dinner after eating too much turkey or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. So so that that's what I'm planning on, on doing, doing some kind of like, yeah, I don't know, DIY playing with a five-year-old, yeah. um, too much turkey, a bit too much wine, and uh, see what pops out. So really briefly, Boson is a decentralized commercial exchange, right? And you've built this, this protocol to allow, like, from what you say, efficient, optimistic, fair exchange protocol, which enables the decentralized commercial exchange of any physical thing without centralized intermediaries or trusted counterparties. When did, when did you guys launch? So we launched V1 in November 21, and we, we just launched V2 
in uh, end of October this year. What problem did you see that needed to be solved in our industry back, you know, like two years ago? Well, if you take the whole notion of decentralization, blockchain, what we're attempting to to do here, we're, we're, we're attempting to have systems that are trustless, right? And so, you, you know, you only need to look at, I mean, I studied Web2 in, in, in lots of depth and kind of like built a whole platform and stuff that was super successful, which means super extractionary. If you look at, for example, commerce, um, the current kind of Web2 paradigm is that you need to trust your seller um, and, and do business with, with someone you trust. And where that trust doesn't exist, then you know either you need to take a chance or that's when the likes of Amazon or eBay come into play. But you know the whole concept of Web two is 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 what you know kind of Gavin Wood would call broken by design, right? It's a system that is designed to be very useful, yeah. but then super extractionary, right? So Amazon's, eBay's, all of them are there are kind of eating the entire economy, and we're kind of like the product. So the vision is of Boson is okay. Well, in Web three, we're trying to we're trying to create systems that are trust minimized systems that that don't have these kind of outsized monopolies and if so you know you know if if you think about whether it's the metaverse or web3 systems need to do need to enable commerce with the real world are we able to do that in a in a natively web3 way in a way that that doesn't require intermediaries and doesn't require loads of like kind of trust or is that impossible that was the question that we asked right because if you think forward into into a web3 world you know we we're, we're going to want to be able to do commercial exchange that doesn't rely on on intermediaries and 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 you know one of the things boson is actually designed to be used by marketplaces and intermediaries and and we solve that that hard problem of um you know tokenizing physical assets and then enabling their sort of trust minimized exchange equally it it, it means that the likes of amazon aren't going to eat the world do you create like some sort of easy way for physical assets to be able to go, you know, in quote on chain? And and what does that mean? A lot of people don't fully understand yeah. what that what that means and why it's so important that we solve this problem in order for us to really to go to the next step, to go from yeah. like the pre-Uniswap to the post-Uniswap world and what that meant for crypto. So yeah. the next technological advance, we need to solve these problems. Yeah. So I mean the domain that Boson is focused on is, is commerce because it's a very, very significant mm. use case for a protocol like Boson. Our vision and our aim there is to be like these decentralized rails upon which all commerce runs, like TCP IP for commerce type thing. But actually, Boson is more fundamental than that. I mean, we when we launched a V2 at ETHCC, we described Boson, you know, if you think of like Chainlink, it's like a data oracle, a blockchain can't really trust good example good example yeah. yeah yeah so like blockchain can't trust the data if you feed rubbish data to a blockchain it will execute it's not that smart right but likewise a blockchain can't affect the real world so we, we kind of describe the likes of chaining because like a data oracle that sort of reads information and then boson is like an actuator oracle so it has the ability to enable blockchains to reliably affect and act on the real world. And so commerce, you know, ensuring that a commerce transaction happens is a really important category. But 
it, it is just a subset of, of, of what Boson can enable. I didn't even know what an actuator was until I started boating. And I realized I found out it's the most important part of a boat. And an actuator is essentially a device that converts energy into a mechanical movement or process, right? Yeah. And so I actually, side note, just learned the difference between an impeller and a piston. An impeller speeds up energy. So if you have like water running through it, it impels it forward faster, where a piston is meant to take the energy of the fast moving air or water or fuel or whatever it is, convert it into energy by slowing it down. I didn't know that. You learned there's so much about physics and different like things that that uh, uh you know are involved in our day-to-day lives. But so going back to that, right? Explain to explain to us why first chain link was so imperative and what that did. Why is why yeah. did we need an oracle system? Well, because you know smart contracts are not that smart. I mean, if you and I if you and I were to have a sort of to do a bet, for example, on the outcome of, I don't know, the next election or something, mm-hmm. we could say, okay, you know, one of us says Biden's going to win, one of us says Trump's going to win, for example. You know, we could lock a, you know, one ETH up in a smart contract and whoever wins, you know, gets the money. But if you could feed that smart contract incorrect data, it would, in a very unsmart way, just pay out based on, and so therefore you need like a, you you, you need a reliable data source, and that's what Chainlink does. It ensures that the data that's fed to smart contracts is reliable, so that you you know they can't be caused to act on on false information. Now, what Boson does is, if a, a smart contract has an agreement in it and it wants to execute that in the real world, i.e., if you're a buyer and I'm a seller and, you know, we both commit to doing a commercial exchange where payment goes one way and product goes the other. How can a smart contract ensure that that, that transaction happens or that if it doesn't happen, but, you know, the, the party that doesn't fulfill their side of the agreement is penalized? And that's what Boson does. And it does it by essentially locking up funds. So, so the way Boson works is a seller will make an offer for an item, right? And list that offer on Boson Protocol. If the buyer likes the terms of that offer, then the buyer can commit some funds to the protocol, which is like committing to an escrow. But then on both the buyer and the seller side, there are two deposits that kind of control the behavior and the reversibility and basically set the level of commitment that both buyer and seller have. So if a buyer commits to a transaction, all these funds get locked up within within Boson. And the buyer gets issued with an NFT, which we call a redeemable NFT. So now, you, essentially, Boson is not really tokenizing physical assets. It's creating forward contracts, uh, which are pretty oh. well-known kind of financial instruments. Right? You know, I can I can go and you know have a forward contract to go and buy a farmer's field worth of corn, a ton of corn from a farmer next year at an agreed price. Right? Yeah. And so. So that's what Boson does. It's like incentivized forward contracts with like penalties. I like forward contracts, options, yeah. things like that. For yeah. example, like yeah. if there was a mechanism, so like there's a lot of empty property around around cities and stuff like that. Now, I people don't necessarily want to like own some of these properties right now because of the carrying costs. 
But if I could be issued almost like an option to purchase the property where I pay now to have an option at a set price, similar to like a forward contract, like you said, of like buying a farmer's like wheat uh, or corn or something like that. There's a lot of like different utilities. You could almost like use it for insurance at the same time, right? Yeah. And what we're seeing is with a whole host of different segments, creating these like commodity markets for these different segments. So, we, we you know, we, we're getting a lot of um, adoption in luxury, for example, like fashion. We're, we're, we're working some with some big kind of platforms and brands on tokenizing high-end handbags, sneakers and fashion, fashion items, tokenizing them with, with, with bows on. And then, you know, um, the buyer can then, you know, get this NFT, which they can either immediately redeem or they can hold or they can transfer or they can gift or they can they, they can plug into DeFi or whatever. So fashion is one, but also luxury wines and spirits is another. So you could have, you know, you could have a whole kind of warehouse full of, of luxury whiskey in Scotland or Tasmania somewhere, and you go and tokenize that. And then this, this NFT is like a bond, right? Because that whiskey is going to take 10 years to mature. And, and then, yeah. you know, only after 10 years would anyone redeem it. And so that thing, that, that thing kind of trades there. So it's super interesting that you've got like these forward, the, the, you know, like these these forward contracts that are turning physical assets into like liquid digital markets. And it works great when everyone's abiding by those rules. But how do you deal with like disputes and resolving them? So there's, there's kind of a number of mechanisms. So firstly, the the protocol itself is designed by one of the protocol designers of Ethereum. He works for the Ethereum Foundation. Who happened to publish a, a paper on dual escrow uh, exchange right. mechanisms. But then, you know, so, so that, that, you know, the incentive mechanism and the structure of this optimistic protocol is designed by one, one of the best protocol designers in the world. But then there's, there's sort of game theoretic elements as well. So buyer and seller can have these sort of optional deposits that controls their ability to back out. So, you know, for example, some sellers might be fine if a buyer commits to the transaction and then backs out. It doesn't bother them. But equally, some sellers could require a buyer to have a deposit. And it's a bit like the difference between going for lunch at McDonald's versus going for lunch like Nobu, right? Yeah. Nobu requires you to put a $100 deposit down, which you lose. And, um, you know. Uh, so yeah, that's it's exactly the case. Like yeah. restaurants that penalize you for breaking a reservation, even if it's like $25, they tend to be the ones that are worth it. And Nobu's yeah, or the ones that would suffer financial loss if you didn't turn up. Like Nobu is that maybe it's like you know they're going to lose five thousand dollars from the the check, right? Yeah. So they put an amount that's going to not really cover them, but it will it will disincentivize people from not turning up. Whereas like you know a normal restaurant with lots of passing traffic, maybe they didn't even they didn't even notice that, right? Because they've always got people queuing for tables, and so it's similarly. With buyers and sellers, you can incentivize the reversibility of those and the level of commitment to these transactions by these deposit amounts. You know, so the, the protocol is designed in a way that it's what's called optimistic. So if, if everything goes well, then what happens is the protocol assumes that the buyer is happy and the seller after a time will just get paid. But And so that's a bit like Amazon, right? If, if you get a delivery from Amazon and do nothing... Amazon assumes that you had the item delivered and you get paid oh, and the seller point. gets paid. And that was one of the major upgrades for V2, which is that you know, V1 was quite complex. The protocol was always involved, lots of transactions, lots of 
you know, kind of less efficient and, and more yeah. costly. Whereas B2 is like, if nothing goes wrong, then the protocol hardly gets involved. The protocol is there when, thing, when things go wrong. So if there's a dispute, there's like a two-stage dispute. The first stage we call mutual resolution, where the protocol just works with the buyer and the seller using a bit of game theory to incentivize the buyer and seller to mutually, mutually resolve the problem by discussing and agreeing like what, what sort of refund there should be. But if that fails, then there is an escalated dispute mechanism. And so that could escalate to a fully decentralized like court-like Kleros, for example. What does that look like? Because, because I, you know, one of the reasons I got into crypto, into Bitcoin really, was I was in the e-commerce world and I, and I was just getting ravaged by... I was selling like the very low price ticket items and a lot of them. And my profit margins were like a dollar. So like a digital camera, I would sell for $10. My cost was $9 shipped, you know, so it was like a dollar. But we'd get killed with a lot of fraud and chargebacks and PayPal. PayPal Dispute Resolution Center. Shit. Talk about a Soviet court. PayPal's distribute, you know, always favored the merchant or the customer. Like it was, I felt like it was always favoring not me. So what what does a decentralized dispute resolution center actually look like? Well, the actual structure of the terms between the buyer and seller is something that, um, I mean, there will be certain templates, but that is kind of configurable, right? So, you know, the, the, the there is like three, and this was, you know, the, the, this kind of techno-legal innovation was designed by a team that, you know, includes Dr. Primavera de Filippi, who wrote blockchain and the law, teaches like blockchain law at Harvard. And so, you know, there is a configurable contract where buyer and seller, where the terms can be essentially they're separated to three segments. One is the obligations of both parties. Two is the evidence requirements that people have satisfied those obligations. Uh, and three, and, and then three is like the outcomes, right? So you could say, okay, proof of delivery it's okay if I've got a photograph of you on the door holding the pup. That's okay, right? And maybe for a book, that's fine. But, you know, if it's like a diamond ring or something, you might require either like a, a pin or you might require like even a cryptographic signature, for example. So, I mean, fundamentally, it's still the same challenges that you've got in e-commerce because it's the same underlying problem. But it is it is configurable and also i guess in the in the example of the likes of paypal yeah. it's in paypal's interest to be slanted towards the buyer right whereas with decentralized commerce this is the agreement between buyer and seller is agreed between buyer and seller and so if you're a buyer and you see that the terms that the seller is selling on are not you know they're not good terms it's not one of the you know, the kind of approved standard templates, yeah. then you should factor that in when buying from, from a seller. And as a seller, you are able, you're able to set the terms upon which you sell, obviously bearing in mind that if those terms aren't competitive, that might impact the attractiveness of the item. So obviously we're not just talking about like the physical world here. As you're talking, I'm thinking of like specific types of transactions that if all the terms were outlined in advance, the dispute resolution, things like that, it's great. But you guys are thinking ahead of me here. You're thinking, and I know that everyone uses this term so much, but like metaverse, you guys are thinking the digital worlds where people are and will be. And I saw this article about you guys 
working and partnering with Metaverse Fashion Week. What, what's going on there? Fashion and luxury is one of the areas that's really embraced sort of tokenization, Web3, so and cool. Web3 commerce. We're doing heaps of, uh, lots of it kind of, you know, about to be announced under NDA, et cetera. Yeah. But yeah, we did Metaverse Fashion last year, which was in Decentraland, where we enabled about 17 brands, including Tommy Hilfiger and Hogan and a whole load of NFT brands to sell physical items as NFTs in the Metaverse. And if you're in this immersive environment and you walk up to a 3D model of the item you want to buy, you click on it and up pops a panel where you can go and do a purchase using Boson and you receive an NFT. And that NFT is like, a, as we said, a futures contract, like an IOU for the item. And then people would take that NFT and they would go and list it on OpenSea, flip it or redeem it or whatever. So that we did last year and that was like on, on V1. And we're, we're doing the same this year on V2, which is this March. Sort of in parallel to that, we're doing some really big implementations of, of fashion and luxury platforms and, and brands where not just commerce, but the really big thing that's happening is like um, Web3 loyalty, right? So it's like yeah. programmable commerce, Web3 loyalty commerce. Web3 loyalty commerce is huge. And kind of what, what I'm thinking about is that we all follow influencers and even pre-social media. I, you know, if you, if you like to read books, we follow our favorite authors to a point where you would sign up to have like be on your, your favorite author's mailing list or if you like to follow sports or we all follow these different people or different brands, identities that are similar to us. And it seems like more, more and more and more now, these people that we follow and these brands are are in these digital worlds. And they're like, you're, I, I'm hearing that people actually can engage some of their favorite celebrities and everything in these type of fashion weeks. Why are they there? Is it just, is it just a very new, novel, unique thing that people are getting excited about? Or do you see like the viability of actually starting like real businesses in some of these digital worlds where where the land or my storefront is something that I own on a blockchain and it can't be taken away from me. Yeah. So I think what you've said there about these property rights is one of the major, major drivers, right? So if you're going to go and buy a digital handbag from Gucci, for example, and you're going to buy that in Roblox, and that is happening, right? In 10 years' time, Roblox may not even be around. You have nothing. But if you buy that digital wearable as an nft that is like immutable it's yours forever and and so and you know so it has a permanence and you have strong property rights over it so that is a massive reason why these digital worlds are being built on web3 technology because of strong property rights it's, it's like the same reason why economies with strong property rights people tend to save and build and grow and invest you know because there's a permanence to it that's a very good quote what you just said there, there's permanence to it. Actually, for the first time, you could say that both in protocol, but really yeah. crypto is bringing permanence to the internet in a way, which we never had before. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. So, so I mean, it solves, it's all, you know, and blockchains, I mean, they solve a number of problems, right? So you've got the double spend problem. That's one, right? So if I've got this. But they do it in a fun way. 
yeah. do it in a fun way. We have fun doing yeah. it. Yeah. And, and and absolutely. I mean, the these worlds, the gamified nature of these worlds, gamified, rewarding experiences is what all of this is about, right? So you can go to a world, it's fun, you play a game, you get rewarded, you get things of value, and you have a great experience, right? These are the, the drivers. And, and also, I think it's like going from extracting from people to sharing value, right? That and, and going from like locking people into like loyalty and systems and co-creating with communities. That, that these are the changes. Do you you study you studied physics yeah. at the Imperial College of London? Do you do you think in those terms? And I guess what I'm asking is, you know, physics, a lot of it is involved in in energy and mathematics and a lot of the energy that we can't see and the relationship between people and things and and different laws that kind of govern the world. Do you kind of have that in the back of your head when you're engaging in these worlds? You're kind of looking at it from like, how do your relationship map? I don't know if I asked this question the right way. Yeah. I mean, my my brain is the operating system that it runs is physics. I love that. That's what I was good. That's what I was trying to ask. Tell me more about that. You know, what I find I have to do is to switch my to switch off from blockchain, I listen to like podcasts or research, but other geeky stuff, right? And what I've been researching a huge amount of is origins of life and things like constructor theory, right? Which is like, you know, what is life? How does it work? It's like information that's been installed on matter and replicates instead of replicating on a compute computational medium, right? Like information work can can be installed on computer. Life is like when you install information on matter and all of this stuff, you know, kind of about computational. And then I end up doing um, this whole kind of research piece with Professor Jason Potts, who's like the world's number one blockchain economist, which we've just uh, we've just published um, the World Economic Forum published it as like Boson um, has this potential to transform not just commerce globally, Mm. but we're looking to the future of, you know, if you think. You go, we went from this analog world where we would exchange value as pieces of paper. And those pieces of paper were like, A, they were physical analog, and B, they were dumb. You couldn't do anything with them. Yeah. I give you $10, you give me. You know. But then we moved to digital. And so now it's kind of, it's it's like electronic, it's instant, but it's still dumb. I'm sending you $10, do you send me whatever. But now we move to this world where it's it's actual programmable, right? So you've got programmable that compute what what uh, Jason Potts calls computable capital, capital that can have conditions attached. We've got programmable commerce, right? Commerce where, like we said, we've got all these token gating, all these conditions. What does that end up with? It ends up you get this programmable economy, right? It's not a digital economy. It's yeah. an economy that can be programmed with all these complex rules and what Jason Potts calls a Turing complete economy. Um, which is just like incredible. So answer to your question, yeah, for me, it's physics all the way down. It like, it scares me a little bit though when you when you talk about that because I kind of, I like as much as I want programmable money, don't we want dumb money? Like where's the finality in the transaction if money can be programmable? I think most of, I think the programmability, actually, I think the programmability sits more with Boson, right? In that, yeah, if I send you one ETH, I send you one ETH, there's no conditions attached. But with the likes of Boson, you can 
And that's why you can do loyalty programs on Boson, right? It's doing payment exchange, payment physical exchange, and all the loyalty rules because the substrate is programmable. With Web2 technologies, you would need payment rails, you need like an Amazon, and then you need like a loyalty rules engine in order to do the same thing that we do all on Web3. I feel like I feel like an idiot right now because for some reason I thought Boson was was an animal, but it's not. It's a subatomic particle essentially, right? Yeah. <laughs> Is that where you guys get the name from? Well, we needed to come up with a name and we was it was it was it was me and my co-founder and my co-founder's technical so he doesn't get involved in branding or marketing. So I came up with the name and what happens when you ask the physicist to come up with a name? Yeah. And like the actual symbol, there's a website that you can go to as a physicist uh, if you're doing like kind of mapping, like doing like Feynman diagrams, which are like subatomic particle diagrams. And it's got a special piece of software that enables you to kind of do these little symbols that are like, okay, well, this is a quark and this is a, you know. A, and so I just use that to create the original boson logo. And then like, obviously there's been lots of iterations. So the logo is is literally a subatomic, um, you know, is like a particle physics diagram, and the name is subatomic particle. But uh, um, you know, most people like it. It's it's pretty geeky though. I wish I took physics, and I wish I studied it more. I wish I. It's never too late, but I wish I got more advanced mathematics in physics, right? And if we're like, if if I'm kind of visualizing this like sink, and inside the sink are the you know you have molecules. And I'm I'm taught right when when it's when it's hotter they move faster when it's colder it's frozen it's almost like frozen. Are do they do they tend to be decentralized or do they tend to kind of like bulk up or like kind of come together in centralized places? It actually it actually depends. I mean, when they're in the gas state, they're super decentralized and super like just randomly moving around. But then as they cool down to sort of like liquid and then, um, you know, and down, down to a, like a solid state, that's when, you know, they, they start to organize into like things like, you know, like, whether it's like liquids or like crystals, for example. And crystals have a very, very symmetric and ordered state. Um, and it's, it, yeah, it's, it's how does quite that... amazing how that order sort of, spontaneously emerges from chaos just by dropping it. Is there like true randomness? Does it come from spontaneity or is it is there some is there some rule or or something that it that it follows? Because if you can well, predict that, right, you can you can do anything. Well, I mean that it, it yeah, I mean it is an amazing thing how that symmetry is broken. And often what can happen is if you call things they can become like super cooled where they're actually below the freezing point, but they're not frozen. And then it takes a small, like kind of seed crystal or something. Ah. And snap freeze. So yeah, I mean, the, these kind of transitions are pretty, pretty amazing. I wonder if there's like a, a constant pull for humanity to decentralize in a way too, because we do, we, it feels like we centralize, we need governments, we need to live amongst each other and have common bonds in common and, and, figure out kind of everything in advance. We're talking about dispute resolution, figuring things out in advance so we don't have randomness or ambiguity in the future. But at the same time in physics, there's like this 
this push towards like constant freedom and chaos and decentralization. So I'm un, I'm almost wondering like where things changed. At, at what point did humanity change? But this may not be a question for today. I mean, this this is why I actually love doing this show because I love falling down these rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. So, well, the reason for decentralizing, I think there are a lot of inefficiencies. There, there is a lot of efficiency to be gained through being centralized. I mean, we're following this whole progressive decentralization where huh. our end state will be a full DAO and fully decentralized. We've just launched V2, and now we are very actively decentralizing. However, you know, I think the main re- one of the main reasons for decentralizing is when you have a centralized organization, it has an imperative to extract maximum value from its community, its customers, et cetera, and transfer that value to its shareholders, right? So that is just like, that's, that is the setup of a, of a centralized organization. And um, the, the way we can prevent that is by setting up some rules that say, actually, we're going to recycle that value to our community. And, you know, as founders or creators of this, of this network, we're actually going to throw away the keys. We're going to give those keys to the community via a DAO so that no one can ever get hold of those keys and decide that they're going to extract loads from the community again. Certainly from our view at Boson is full scale. Boson could be multi-billion, possibly trillion dollar kind of network. We have to decentralize it to protect its vision of being like this network that is owned by its community and shares the value that it creates. Oh, I love that. It's the path to decentralization. It's the path to decentralization. I mean, I need to write this this book called The Path of Decentralization because you just described a whole chapter of it, bringing in the physics of decentralization. I love it. Justin, thank you so much. That's all the time we have today. Thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories, going down this rabbit hole with me, telling some cool stories, teaching us some physics, reminding me why I should have paid more attention in university and for teaching us about Boson and everything. Thanks, Charlie. I really enjoyed it.